0: Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to discuss the topic of integrating some annual forages and cover crops into a row crop system and to discuss this topic. I'm joined today by Kendall Siebert, who's on a diversified crop livestock operation near Henderson, Nebraska, which is in York County. Thanks for joining me today.
1: You bet. No problem.
0: Well, Kendall, before we dive into the topic, which is really around some things you've observed there in your operation, integrating some annual forages into your row crop system, uh, combining that with a cow-calf operation, seed stock operation there, uh, just tell us some more about the operation, the history of the operation, and how you arrived at where you are today.
1: Uh, our operation would have traditionally, at least for the last 30 years, been just a corn-soybean rotation and ridge-till as far as the tillage. Uh, We would do two years of corn and then one year of soybeans and just be in that continual rotation. My dad had been messing with different forages for 20 years already and kind of landed on a forage sorghum. That's kind of been the staple of our, our grazing type operation that we've done on small acres here and there just to make it so that we had more stuff available for livestock. We live in an area that is 98% crop ground. So there's very little pasture except what you have for yourself. And other stuff is just really small pastures. So just kind of did that to extend your ability to graze. And so we did some of that on irrigated acres too. And uh, that's probably did more leading into us doing other forages or even cover crops than anything else has just because it had just produced really well for us for livestock and the livestock did really well on it. And uh, we kind of stayed and doing that in small patches here and there for a lot of years and mainly use that as our silage that we would cut each year and uh, about five years ago just started paying attention to a little section of a field that we had done a few times in that forage sorghum and then the rest of the field had just been traditionally farmed but like over the past 19 years only five years has it ever been in that forage sorghum and we've grazed it most of the years one year we cut it for silage Just analyzing that part of the field, once we had uh, an accurate yield monitor and got into soil sampling like that, is the only section of the field that's up to the exact line where the fence line would be, where you would have two to three times the amount of phosphorus and zinc available in a traditional soil test. And then it usually, it would average, on average, do about 20 to 25 bushel an acre better when you had corn. Our yield monitor's not accurate enough on beans, that I could really say it does better or worse on beans. They grow taller, but I can't say there's any more bushels out there. But uh, on corn, we've done weigh wagons and stuff for that section. We had two years in a row where it did 50 bushels an acre better. And so just doing a little more analyzing, we've always been, I've always been interested in, my dad too, trying to do livestock on irrigated acres and how you can make it pay for itself and have your livestock close to home. And uh, that kind of just led us into that, I guess, we've done a rotation of rye and sedan grass for 20 years for grazing during AI season and then cutting silage after that or do a little bit of grazing, depending on what the year needed. And so, but as far as like doing it on a larger scale or how you could justify taking an irrigated quarter out of production or an irrigated 80 and do just forages, it kind of came down to what long-term benefits you could get. And that was kind of what steered us in the direction of trying to do some more irrigated grazing of forages and then making that part of our rotation on our farm. And really the rotational part, we're only in like the, well, about the second year of that. We haven't moved on to a new farm yet. We're still trying to figure out how to get paddocks set up and have the timing right out for plantings and stuff that you always have forages available. But uh, it's also got us interested in wh- where we do rye, we tend to have a lot less palmer pressure the next year. And so might be integrating, doing some rye and then planting into that or roller crimping at one of the two. So, but we're not very far into that. That's just some observations based off of doing
0: grazing, But, uh,
1: So that's where we started and kind of where we're at at the moment and why we ended up there.
0: So, your rotation is two years of corn, then soybeans, and then after the soybeans that fall, you're coming in and drilling rye. Is that correct?
1: We are, yep. And then we'll do it like if it was a quarter, we would stagger out each one of those plantings of rye at a different time, about two to three weeks apart from each other. We'd like to have one planted by early mid-September, because that allows us to get cattle out on the grass in early April. And then it makes it so that each each patch of rye ends up being at that stage you needed at for the cows to come into it and graze it pretty efficiently, and then you can keep rotating around. We might try triticale in one of the later ones. I had someone tell me that it usually produces better later into the summer. I don't have any experience with it, but that's usually the, the grazing period we kind of struggle with is that transition time from rye to sedan grass, but I don't know. I should look a little harder into the, the version of rye we got this year because we're still grazing rye now, so it's been kind of an odd year. That's not normally how that goes, but uh, we're not usually trying to graze it this late either, so we'll normally we terminate it by now, so maybe we're just learning what it can be, I guess. But yes, that would be uh, that's how our rotation would be
0: set up. And so on the rye, you graze out or are you chopping some of that for silage then also?
1: We haven't. We wanted to do that this year. We were so short on grass with the drought. We just ended up grazing all the rye we had available. We were going to take a section and do some haylage, but there are rylage, but that didn't work out in the future. We would make that as part of our, our silage cutting. So we would do some rylage early and do the sedan grass later on. So we kind of have two things to choose from or to
0: make a, a blend out of.
1: So yes, in the future, yes, that was this year's plan. Weather changes every plan.
0: As you look at that rye, you mentioned you stagger your planting dates. Then as you go through the grazing rotation, I assume you're terminating the earliest planted stuff. And then is that where you're planting the sorghum sedan?
1: Yes. So we'll basically, those staggered plantings make it so it works for the rye and the sedan grass. Because the sedan grass, like you'd probably like some of it planted every two weeks, and then after that, it probably doesn't matter. Because the thing is, once it, gets to, it takes about a month from planting time for it to get to the height, you have to graze it. It needs to get 30 inches tall before the prussic acid concern mm-hmm. goes away. But after that, it just continually regrows. So You like to have some of the staggered, but I will say going forward, initially I thought that staggered planting was going to be really important to the sedan grass because grazing-wise, you don't want it to get very tall because it can't just graze. They usually won't graze that whole stem down. You end up with a certain amount of waste that they just, they just leave behind, but I think in the future, when we have a patch that's just getting too tall, we'll, that that's just be what we'll cut for silage, and that's kind of how we'll We'll make the staggering work so that no nothing that the cows are grazing gets too tall for them. So if the cows aren't keeping up and you know if they need to stay in one paddock quite a bit longer and the next one's getting pretty tall, that's just what we'll have set up for cutting and silage and make that as part of our essentially part of our rotation, I guess.
0: So I guess you're thinking about trying to, you know, run this balance of the available forage that's out there with the cattle and then harvesting the excess forage, I guess, talk a little about how are you harvesting that silage? I assume you have the equipment yourself. Are you bagging it? Or are you putting it into a pit or what's that look like?
1: So we put it in a pit. We don't have the equipment ourselves, but the feedlot that's just a half mile down the road from us, they do haylage and they do rilage and they do regular silage. And so they've done our sedan grass for three years now. And, uh, they're usually available during the summer because that's not very busy. So if we have some early sedan grass that we need cut when it's small like that, we're, we're going to try and instead of letting the sedan grass grow really tall to 15 feet and then cutting it once, we're going to cut it twice at six to eight feet tall because you end up with a lot more leaf matter and it's a lot higher quality feed. And so that's how staggering out the cuttings will kind of benefit us because we don't need it to get super tall. We're not waiting till the end of the season. And if you don't wait and you let the cat on them there's something really unique when you let the cattle graze something for the season on that piece of ground and then come back and plant into it for us it makes it so that we don't need nitrogen the next year to grow forages again so like we had plots last year where we had sedan grass that we cut for silage and that's all we did never let any cattle go back in there and just nothing grew like it got four feet tall we cut it for hay but normally it would grow another four or five feet after that, and it just basically ran out of energy, it seemed like. And we even fertilized it, and it didn't do a whole lot better. But we had other plots where we had rye planted first. We let the cows graze that rye down, then went and planted the sedan grass without nitrogen. That stuff grew perfectly fine. So, in our thought process is, if we can have the cattle integrated on one crop per year on that forage, so don't just plant acres, and that's the acres we're going to cut for silage. That's just acres we're going to cut half for silage half for grazing and in these acres here we're going to cut half for silage half for grazing just there's something unique about having the livestock out there for a certain period of time whether it's micro building whether it's you know manure and urine and how much impact that has that we don't necessarily understand whatever the case is it seemed to be extremely noticeable last year and it allows us to do that same system and grow you know, between the rye and the sedan grass with no nitrogen, we probably grew somewhere around 30 to 32 tons of silage that or haylage that we didn't have to do anything for. Not to mention we didn't make any passes through the field. So that saves some time and money too. So that's kind of, that's another reason for the rotation and uh, why we would cut it at the heights we do, just so we can have the cattle integrated on every acre every year while it's in forage.
0: So talk about your water and fence situation, because I, I think a lot of people listening to our conversation are thinking, your row crop, your ridge till, and now you're building fence. How does that work? How do you get water where it needs to be? What are the logistics of making that system work?
1: So we're slowly moving away from ridge till. So the field we have it on is a flat field. Not that you couldn't make it work on a ridged one, but it is a lot less handy. I can tell you that. So we've done small patches on ridge till and that's, yeah, it's not very much fun. I can't do it. It's just, it's really unpleasant. So, but the field that we're doing it on and that we'll do it on in the future, they will be no-till type fields. As far as water situations, uh, the one that we have right now, last year it was only on half the field, so it was on 60 acres. Um, we set up the fence, so it ran in an arc with a pivot. And so it never had to cross that fence line at any point, and then we actually had four paddocks on 60 acres, so the only section it had to cross was the cross fence. Um, if you do it with insulators, and uh, we will have it set up better this year, but uh, last year, the way that we had it set up, it was offset of the pivot point, which is definitely not how you want it to be, but that's how the field was harvested of the previous crop, so we didn't have anything planted there, so we are only having the cows graze what was planted, the rye. And so it wasn't the ideal setup, but how it'll be in the future is it'll be a quarter and it'll be spent four ways. And as far as letting it cross in between, we will just let the cows cross over. They will be into the next paddock over. All we do is lower insulators. You might be able to make it work with just uh, loosening the wire, but it seems like it never passes right through the insulators the way you want it to, and it'll catch on something. So it's best to have someone just go let it, and we just let the pivot follow the cows. So as they graze out a section, unless it rains, then you don't worry about it, but on a year like this year, they will graze out, you know, if it's on a quarter, they will graze out a 40. They will move on to the next 40. You will follow and irrigate the 40 acres they were just on. You let them graze for whatever time period they need to be in there and keep rotating them around like that. For us, we ran a water line above ground because we didn't necessarily know where all we were going to have it in the future, we wanted to make it movable. So we just got a one inch water line like you would run for a hydrant. And we ran that above the ground and you could move it wherever you wanted to. We placed the tank in the middle of those four quadrants that we made on those 60 acres and put a, a gate at every intersection where it met the tank. And so you always moved them at the tank. You would just call them over to the tank and they would walk right over to where you were. But you could also make each section of the fence dead there, too, if you wanted to, for either lowering the fence or fixing or whatever. Probably the most complicated thing is figuring out how you want to have the fence set up so that it's easiest to adjust and move cows and do things. For, for us, it was complicated because it wasn't a whole quarter or an 80. It's because we had four quadrants on only 60 acres of an arc, so half the field. And so it made it so we had to put the fence down and adjust it a lot more than what we would normally have to but uh in the future it'll be set up as four pack four paddocks essentially and we will probably on that field we may not have the water in the middle mainly because of where the pivot point is it's on a side hill so that one won't be as handy we actually have a yard that's on two of the sides that we might let them go back for water or we'll run our above ground tank which was just from a hydrant so we ran like 900 feet away from the yard it was just an above ground line and just put a float on there left it be it worked just fine and it's very movable and pretty easy with two people you could drag that line and put it wherever you wanted in the future we might put some underground line but uh, that's kind of to be determined for the time being but uh, I've also thought on our flatter field you actually where the wellhead is you can actually drop like a little submersible well into there when you're not running it. So we might do that as water in the future, and then we can just have that set up on a float system. So that's our plan on the flatter field. On this field, it's just not an option. And the motor, where the well is, is not in the center of the field. On lots of our fields, the well and the pivot are at the center point. And on this one, it's like in one one of the uh, 40s. So it doesn't quite work that
0: way. Kendall, you talked about just how you've integrated the the cattle into your cropping system. You have both a January, February calving herd, which is part of a seed stock operation of purebred. And then uh, you recently added a fall calving cow herd. I guess talk a little bit about your your thought process around how those two different calving times uh, fit your system. And then just some things you're thinking about as you move forward, uh, as you think about your crop system, your livestock system, integrating those, how those pieces might fit together for you.
1: Um, so for the, the the reason for the fall calving herd was for this system in particular, the only real way to, to capitalize on like making the money on a quarter that you need to each year for an irrigated quarter was to add cattle that would be on those acres. Otherwise, you're just saving the money that you're paying on grass. And if you have really expensive grass, then maybe that works. We don't necessarily. And so in order to make extra money, as opposed to just saving it from being spent somewhere else, is to kind of add livestock. And for us, we couldn't afford to do any more calving in spring, just because of the labor it takes because of what the weather's like that time of year. But we calve that time of year because for a seed stock operation, in order for you to have bulls available at a yearling age, in march you kind of have to calve that early so we're kind of not stuck in that system but that's kind of what's been chosen and my dad's built a business off that but in order for us to kind of take advantage of doing the forage thing to me the goal was to be able to run a cow an acre for the whole year on an irrigated field we've been able to run kind of two cows per acre during the grazing season during the summer which is great for grazing but uh, then during the winter what would you do well it's easy for You know, as far as as the labor side, we can handle the calving if we can have decent weather and have them in a healthy environment and just have mountain pasture while they're calving. Well, then we can handle more calving and more livestock. That's not really an issue. And so it was kind of an experiment to see if that worked okay, which worked really well for us last year. And then it was the moving forward to having the proper feed available for a cow raising a calf because just out on stocks isn't ideal. And if I'm just going to go buy creep feed to get everybody to gain weight that kind of just seems like a defeating the purpose type standpoint where I'm trying to just provide the forage that they need so that they can kind of do what they're supposed to do. So the idea there would be, say, if you took an 80 and you have two 40s, you know, you would be, we would have the whole thing planted into rye and they'd be grazing all that early. The stuff that you would, you terminate some of it early so you could get your sedan grass planted for them to graze the rest of the summer. And then the then the rye, you would uh, graze really late, you'd terminate late, and this plant into. We will do a variety of probably three or four different things. Um, it'll probably involve a certain amount of milo for energy. It'll involve some vetch for some protein and survivability during the winter, along with like some turnips and something that those are things that stay pretty green during the winter and keep them interested. Um, and the idea is just get enough tonnage and enough healthy tonnage that they can raise a calf, that calf can gain weight, and that mom can nurse decent, we can run them through the whole winter. So, that's kind of the whole purpose and interest of the, the fall herd, and just to have a very low input, low effort herd. So, you know, when you have that time of year, their cows are pretty well doing it all on their own, and for the most part, they can do that if they're in a healthy environment. We didn't even do any we didn't do any vaccines. We didn't do any, we didn't treat a single calf because for the most part, the diseases we vaccinate for in spring are what they pick up or what they pick up in the dry lots because they're just around manure all the time. And so if we can avoid that then we don't have to worry about a good chunk of the things that also take our time, which is just the management of calves and stuff. And so, and then the next part of that is like, it. you know, if you can run a cow per acre for the whole year, then all the income off of that calf goes to that acre. So it's you know your expenses for raising those forages and uh, what's put into those cows during that period of time uh, take that away from whatever your gross income was from that calf and that's everything you made off of that acre which for us would very easily compete with irrigated crop ground or do better and so we kind of like to be able to expand into livestock but make it be profitable in a business plan moving forward so that's kind of the reason for the fall herd also allows you to build equity in that field because now you have a cow that lives on that field that's worth 1500 bucks young person you can build equity and make money on the field at the same time Um, as far as the spring herd lots of that it's us moving some cows home had to do more with convenience and trying to create time for other things than it did just making money because we don't really we're not able to graze quite enough cows per acre to compete with what we do for irrigated crops. Maybe if expenses keep going up, that'll be different. But uh, for us, where we had a, you know 200 head of cows between replacement heifers and cow-calf pairs that we were running in 10 or 11 different pastures, it's just a lot of running around. It's a lot of checking waters, cows getting out, and fences all that type of stuff so we're trying to eliminate a few of our most inconvenient pastures and move some cows home where we can manage them there it's also the idea of keeping all of your nutrients that you produce on your farm on your farm your cows manure and urine is incredibly valuable more so than most people know you can keep all that on your own farm instead of shipping it off to someone else's pasture for them to benefit for it from it the whole summer i think there's some real benefits that have been shown to our farm by doing it that way so kind of a, I guess, a twofold thing. It does fit the spring herd fine, but as far as trying to capitalize on a business side of it, that is probably more so where the fall herd comes in.
0: As you think about the spring herd that you, you have, you mentioned your dad's built a business on that, and then starting the fall herd. What are some synergies you're getting with those two herds that complement each other?
1: Well, in some ways, it is nice in the summer to have cows that need very little feed to survive the fall herd you know they kind of fit they can fit different pastures or they can fit different situations simply because they don't need a lot of nutrition because they're not nursing a calf they're just going about and maintaining themselves and it's it's somewhat nice that during you know it's amazing how well the fall calves just follow their moms everywhere they go and they rarely get out but as far as the spring herd you know it there are some benefits to that as far as like the time of year when you're weaning it is somewhat you know it's somewhat nice to wean going into winter from a disease standpoint Just would love to have feed for them to go on to that doesn't have to be a dry lot, and we might in the future too um but there are some real there's some benefits to, to doing it that way Um, we're still trying to figure out what weaning does or doesn't need to look like for the fall herd we kind of did it the way we normally do where we just bunk trained them and did it in a dry lot Uh, we didn't have any feed for them to go out onto because of how dry it was in the future we might try and do some across fence weaning just out on grass or if we have a forage planted for them but uh, I mean ideally it'd be probably a lot easier to just have one or the other where we have one going that is successful on its own it's hard to drop that and go do something else and that's the part that my dad really enjoys too so i thought if we could start moving some of those spring cows home so that it's easier to maintain them during the summer it might make that herd easier to manage as my parents keep getting older and then the herd that we build on is a very low maintenance herd that can operate with very little input or activity during the summer and winter and so yeah I don't know if that answers the question or not
0: yeah no it does I think you mentioned around trying to build a forage system for those fall calving cows and I guess just share a little bit about logistics with that in the winter Uh, are you strip grazing how does that look in terms of giving them access to this feed you've grown
1: So we strip grazed them this winter on down Milo and some other stuff that was at my house um, and then on stalks too. Um, So we would probably continue that same type of system. So for us, if it was, we would do it one fence at a time. So we've we've done some of this on just regular corn stalks. You know, Most of the time our tank is in one spot and we likely won't move it during the winter because it doesn't really cause much damage when the ground is frozen. And so we'll just fence off like 20 acre sections at a time and let them move across the field because really once they're done with the section, they don't really go back into it if they have a fresh section to go into. So we probably, during the winter, we won't be moving and managing water. It's just from the freezing standpoint and that type of stuff, we're probably going to make it simple unless we come up with a system that works really good for that. But strip grazing for me is kind of a must to... it's diet management is what it is even when cows are out on regular corn stalks it's diet management because if you do it 20 acres at a time at least you know we will graze on a quarter we'll graze you know 160 head at one time well you can usually get twice as much use out of that field if you just do it 20 or 40 acres at a time because at least every few days or once a week they get fresh corn or least at least some corn in their diet where you turn cows onto a quarter and they're going to be there for a month or whatever, they'll go get all the corn in the first week and then they have no corn for the next three weeks and they eventually want to leave, not because they ran out of feed, because they ran out of feed they like. So there's still plenty out there for them to eat and they'll keep working and eating corn stalks if they have some corn out there to eat with it. Once the corn is gone, just kind of uh, just like humans no different. once we run out of something we really want to eat we don't want to eat the other stuff we're only kind of interested in so so a lot of it will just be diet management like for us we'll have a certain amount of like milo planted in there for the sake that it just has a head with some energy in it well i don't necessarily the same deal i don't want them to have a whole field of that where they would just go eat milo heads off of everything there's not going to be a ton of that out there but i want to have a certain amount that that's part of their diet that they have that to to consume and then every you know however long you want to move them for us it'd probably only be every couple weeks that we would move them Uh, i know some people love doing it really intensely but i only have so much time to move stuff
0: i guess as you have integrated these annual forages and you mentioned your dad's done it some and you've seen just some benefits in in the crop and you know again hard to quantify i guess or pinpoint you've said exactly the reasons why, just observations. Um, as you think about, you know, going forward and and continuing to utilize the annual forages, how often do you try to get those in your rotation as you think about your crop acres? And again, I realize you're still envisioning what this might look like, but I guess just give some perspective in terms of as of today, as you think about where you're going, how are you going to integrate that into your your farm as a whole?
1: As, far as just the system that we have in place now we would like to have grazed acres or like take a quarter out of regular production and do this system on one quarter for maybe two years in a row or one year so we have like 10 quarters or 10 fields so it'll, you know one or two you know one out of every 10 years that field will be in that type of a rotation as opposed to just corn and soybeans as far as having cover crops on a larger scale involved in our operation. We're trying to move down the route of having rye planted first, mainly for weed control more than anything. We have a pretty significant Palmer problem. We spread it from our own lots kind of unknowingly quite a few years ago. And uh, so anywhere where we've had um, rye planted and then Last year we just tried doing some crimping with our stock chopper, which didn't do an awesome job, but it did lay it down. And uh it was interesting. That was the only part of the, you know, it was just all the end rows and then one pass through the field had rye because it was supposed to be vetch that was planted. And uh the people that planted it, they're like, Is it okay if we just use up what's in there? And like, Yeah, that's fine. You know, it'll be okay for what we were gonna use it for. And uh So we just tried laying that stuff down and anywhere where that rye was planted and then laid down like no palmer came in there. And it's not like it was a thick mass of rye that kept anything from growing. It just seemed like having something different growing there. Not to mention rye does keep small seeds from from germinating when it's growing pretty quickly because it puts out some of its own root exudates. But as far as what it will look like going forward, we already own a roller crimper that we bought. So next year we plan to have 40 to 80 acres of beans and 40 to 80 acres of corn that we're gonna let go, the rye go till it's at the stage where you can fully attempt to kill it with a roller crimper and uh, plant into that. But we're gonna do some acres where we're just gonna use the roller crimper as a tool. So we'll have rye planted, but the whole purpose of it won't be to kill the rye. We'll probably terminate the rye earlier so that we can have a, pretty normal planting date and just use the roller crimper to lay it down for the sake of certain amount of weed barrier and then you know we have some rougher fields and just seeing what it looked like where we laid the rye down I've looked at some other people's fields too where they did a significant amount of rye like just its ability just to hold everything in place is just pretty amazing when you have a nice mat down like that and I noticed too when we grazed the field here by my house where we had laid that rye down it's just amazing like it held up good enough through the winter like the cows didn't just pummel the ground to nothing you ended up with a little bit of a layer that just stayed there instead of just having bare dirt once they had trampled down an area real bad so i think it actually provides a certain layer of protection from your livestock because some of your heavily trafficked areas around the tank or just the path they take back and forth you know to where your salt mineral is or whatever the case may be it helps with all that a little bit so probably next year we'll have 80 acres to a quarter planted into rye for one purpose or another as far as our farming operation. I mean, I would like to think that in a year or two almost all of our beans could be planted into that just because that's probably where we struggle the most with weeds just because beans takes them so long to start outgrowing anything where corn takes off pretty fast. As far as the corn, it's the nutrient management side that I don't quite know enough about. And so, This winter, I'm going to put a lot more effort into that, because stuff can look pretty poor coming up after rye. That doesn't mean that it'll stay that way, but uh, we've also terminated rye and then planted stuff, giving it a week or two break, and it's amazing how much better like even forages grow after that small break instead of planting right after it. Beans can struggle a little bit coming up and that type of stuff, and it's not a big deal for their yield. They seem to like stress in their life in order to produce beans, but Corn doesn't seem to like that as much, so I'm a little more hesitant doing more of that on corn. But for us, yeah, just to adjust, just to lower, take better care of uh, our palmer issue is probably our number one reason to try and integrate something. But honestly, I, I just enjoy that style of farming, too. Spring season is the season I hate the most. don't like handling chemicals. I just like planting and terminating something with a piece of equipment. That sounds really simple. So... I just like simple things
0: you mentioned you've got a roller crimper now, but as you planted into that stuff, you stock chopped I mean, how was the seed bed there? How was it to plant into? Did you have any trouble with emergence with that amount of residue? What did that look like
1: we didn't have any issues with what we had what i uh, it was probably only fifty pounds an acre worth of rye that was there. it wasn't very thick. We had decent moisture when we planted, so moisture wasn't an issue that's something that some people can have an issue with for us it's a it's a mindset change. We know that most, most likely it'll be dry when we plant. <laughs> we have some we have a feedlot next to us that has done it for quite a few years, and sometimes it does take just running the pivot, putting on a half inch before you go plant so that you can get in the ground just because, because the rye can make it hard, not because it's, there's something wrong with the rye, just because the ground's dry, you know, because you have something using it. But as far as after that to me it's also a, a water savings yes we can irrigate we're not necessarily very limited on our water here but it takes your time it takes your energy and it takes your money to do it and it's, it's getting more expensive too for me i'm i'm looking at it as a long-term water savings uh, we've planted into standing rye and we've planted into laying down rye and even just having it standing there at two feet tall or something it doesn't matter if you just ran your pivot on a 90 degree day that's windy, you know, your bare soil will be dry on the surface in a few hours and that other stuff won't be dry for a few days. And it, we put water marks. we put some some sensors that sent all the data back to your phone just for water sensors and we did some in our, on the same field where you had standing rye and where you had, that you planted into and where you just had your regular program on the other side, which would have been ridge till at that time. And you always have three to five more days of water on that other side, just from not evaporation, especially early in the season. So honestly, for one of the big takeaways, I think on the average year for us, we would have enough moisture in spring, but uh, probably five out of those 10 years, you you might have where it's a little dry on certain fields where you have to run the pivot, but you might be sacrificing an inch or two on a certain spring where you gotta get your corn watered up. But I think by the end, you'll have saved Three or four by the end of the season by not losing all the evaporation that you end up losing so those are my two main interests like i have certainly a soil health interest to it but soil health only matters if you can get it to pay for itself so for me i guess i'm a little more focused on the things that look like they're tangible and logical until i have a better understanding of What soil health means because that can mean anything to anybody. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. There's I think you ask uh, ten people what that means and you'll get ten different answers. So uh, it is
1: way too general of a of a saying. Yeah, I do think there's real benefits to your soil to having something growing there and to have a certain amount of protection on your soil so it's not exposed to the sun, especially having some sort of whether it's standing rye or laying down rye or another cover crop. When a hard rain comes and you have something that slows that rain down before it hits your soil, it'll always absorb better. So your ability to take advantage of a two or three inch rain, really around here, if we get more than an inch and a half, it's not going to go in anymore. It's going to be runoff. That's just all the more that bare soil can stand. Yeah. If it comes fast. And uh, just looking at, I've looked at people that have a nice mass of rye that they planted into and you're like well, yeah, it could rain as hard as it wanted. It would never do more than just drip onto the soil though, because all the impact is taken by what you laid down or that's still standing, one of the two. And then it just drips onto your soil after that, which is exactly what you want. And I think for residuals, you know, trying to keep weeds at bay, residuals are our main mode of action in commercial eggs. Well, they're most active when the soil is moist. Well, you can put a residual down and your soil stays moist longer simply because you have some protection there. Well, then whatever you put down, maybe you don't need near as much of it, or maybe it just works that much better. I think there's some complementary things there. But I can assure you it's not simple. So but where we did it last year, uh, we didn't really have a stand issue and we didn't have any other issues that went along with it, but it was not a thick mat that was a problem to plant through. So I have seen people who had trouble getting it laid down enough that they could plant into it you know because of how much volume they had grown but uh, ours will mainly just be to have enough for a weed control and that type of stuff got a lot to learn yet i can assure you of that but the one yeah. little test plot that we did we didn't have any real issues it was milo that was planted into it the only thing we're trying to figure out is what fertilizer you know how we're going to apply nitrogen we have sure. some pivots set up for to then maybe that's the best route to do that. We're traditionally anhydrous. We've done some fertigation and we've done some side dress type applications, but uh, yeah, not totally sure exactly what we will do with that, but there's plenty of options to choose from.
0: So you mentioned milo a little bit, I guess. Uh, Do you grow some milo for a grain crop then primarily, or is it is this probably just going to be a part of your, your annual forage mix, so to speak, to provide some energy for your grazing for your cows?
1: We grew it for two years just as a crop because actually the Milo price was really competitive with corn, only it cost about half as much to grow it, and so or less than that. And so we kind of did it out of, eh, for me, I'm just young enough that that stuff sounds interesting to try something new and dad was okay with it. And so we kind of experimented with that for two years. Really only went away from it because there's two benefits you don't get compared to corn. There's, like we had some Milo go down and honestly, you know, there's no good crop insurance for Milo. So if you have a problem with it, there's not much that you get back from it. And also there's just not, for me, it was, like our spraying season is so busy trying to do it ourselves to add one more rinse out and respray onto a new crop. It was just simpler to not have it. Sure. Not that I had an issue doing it. And same at harvest time. You have to stop the machine and you have to, there are some settings and some parts that you have to put onto the combine in order to properly do Milo, which isn't a huge deal, but there were not enough benefits for us. You know from a business standpoint that it justified its inconvenience but it was good for grazing the cattle liked the milo stubble really well and they did well on it i don't know that we'll do it honestly it's probably weeds that would keep me away from doing it because there's not a lot of chemicals you can use on milo especially residuals and so for me i didn't know how many fields i could really use it on and if it didn't come with and i don't a lot of people will tell you well, just having a different crop in your rotation is good. I don't disagree with that, but they're also not the ones that have to do all my spraying and operate my life on the side. So for us, it was simplest to just not have it, but we will do it. We've done it. Uh, I did strip grazing with Milo because we interseeded. So I did a plant population study in corn, went all the way down to 10,000 plants. And then we interseeded Milo and some other forages into there to see just what the grazing would look like in that. And it is just, that just worked really well with Milo. And it kind of gets to the right height. It puts on a lot of leaves. And so we thought it would be something that would create a perfect canopy for our smaller crops to grow underneath it. And then if we get snow in the winter, kind of protect everything from getting too pressed, like the snow just weighing down on everything and kind of create a little canopy that'd be easy for cows to still go eat underneath that Milo stubble because it'd still be standing. You know, We wouldn't have harvested it or anything. It'd be part of our winter forage. So that might be more so the purpose it takes, not saying I would never plant it again, but uh, maybe if we got more into roller crimpings, I know a lot of guys that use Milo for that because you can plant it really late and it'll still have full yield potential. I, I, if I, if we had, if we got into the position where we were effective at really controlling weeds with roller crimping, I would, pro, that's when I would be most interested in going back to my, role. simply because I, that was becoming too much of an issue on every field for us to manage. So, not looking for a crop that had even more limitations on what you could do or not do with it. So,
0: sure, sure. Well, Kendall, I really enjoyed my conversation with you today. Uh, just thinking about all the pieces of the puzzle that you're trying to put together there and, and how that might look and some different things you're trying and just very interesting to see some things you're thinking through and how you might put those together with your system. So really appreciate your time today. Yeah,
1: you bet. Hopefully there's a little piece of information that's helpful to somebody.
0: So Kendall, if people had questions around some of the conversation we had today, are you open to visiting about that? Or I guess uh, what's how, I guess, would you be available to bounce ideas, get some perspective uh, if people wanted to pick your brain some more?
1: Absolutely, because I might want to pick their brain too. Well,
0: if you have questions around what Kendall's doing with their integrated crop livestock operation there, he'd sure be willing to visit with you. And again, uh, his phone number is 308-850-5157, located near Henderson, Nebraska. That's in York County. And uh, again, just doing a number of different things there with integrating their cattle and their crops, cover crops and the grazing system. And so I would encourage you if you have questions to contact him.
1: If I don't answer your phone call, please do leave a voicemail. I do call people back, but if I get strange phone numbers, I don't recognize, I don't answer very many of them because of how much spam I get on my phone. So just so you know, because not very many people like to leave much more.
0: So. Yeah, no, I understand that. So the other thing I would mention just in our conversation is uh there is a number of resources at the beef.unl.edu website on integrating crops and livestock as well. And so if you have some, have some interest in those, uh, annual forages, harvesting annual forages for silage, again, quite a bit of good resources at the beef.unl.edu website.